Hello, hello. Welcome to yet another episode of Skeptics and Seekers. I'm your host, David the Skeptic, and I'm joined by Natalie Collins. Natalie, how are you doing? Hello, I'm really good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So some of you, those of you who have been listening to the show for a while, have uh, heard Natalie and I talk a a couple of times uh, in the past. She is one of my favorite human beings to have a conversation with. Uh, I really enjoy her. I have I have said this at least behind her back several times. It's only fair to say it to her face. She is she is my kind of cray, uh, uh, just uh, just out there for for reasons uh, that I talk about in my blog a little bit. So I'll I'll share with you uh, a little bit about what I said uh, to the rest of the world, Natalie. Uh, so there are a couple of kinds of people that I really like talking. Uh, to really really enjoy the conversations one kind of person is a person who has uh amassed so much expertise on a subject that they they just know the subject extremely well they have a lot of knowledge about a thing and they and they communicate that well another kind of person that i like talking to though is a person who hasn't uh spent Maybe as much time just gaining academic knowledge as much as a person who is extremely passionate uh, about a thing, and I really enjoy uh, people who are passionate about things. I can I can uh, listen to people and talk to people on any subject uh, if if the passion level is there. And you are closer to that kind of person, although you kind of blow it because you also know a lot. <laughs> so, but uh, you have. You have this other uh, quality uh, when it comes to uh, theological conversations. Uh, theology for you is not a subject. It's not a. Uh, it's it's less a subject, less a discipline, uh, less uh, l- less about doctrine and more about experience. Uh, it's it's not even passion in the same way as say space nerds are passionate about space. Uh, they may be passionate about space, but very few space nerds ever go to space. So they don't, they don't have any experience <laughs> to go with their passion. They're just passionate about it. Um, you, on the other hand, when you talk about uh, your, your uh, relationship with God, it is, a, it is a living relationship. You're not preaching doctrine, and you're not just spouting uh, passion. You are talking about a living, breathing relationship uh, with someone that you communicate with on a regular basis. It's it's your experience of God that uh, that uh, that drives you, and that that I think is one of the things that makes you a little bit unique. Uh, and so I um, I I like talking to you for this reason. It's it's something that is more real to you than it is to a lot of people that I talk to. Is that fair? I think, yeah, but I'm really grateful. That's a, that's a wonderful thing to hear. I also, it also makes me massively depressed that it's not, it's not the norm for people who espouse to be Christians to, to have experienced God um, in that way, or that that's not been your experience of Christians particularly. So, um, yeah, so I think, um, yeah, as, as I, much as I'm grateful, I'm also depressed that it's my, my kind of understanding of Christian faith is not the norm um, for lots of people. So, um, yeah. That's that's skeptics and seekers. Uh, we make people both happy and depressed. It's our mission. Um, it's, a, it's a goal. <laughs> so, uh, Natalie, uh, the last time we talked, uh, the world was a very different place. Uh, 
Uh, yeah. I don't know if you remember it, <laughs> but it was, <laughs> it was a very different place. So why don't we just start with uh, a basic question? How are you managing the new reality? Yeah, I adjusted pretty quickly. And I think I, I talked about this a bit in the chapter that I wrote for the book that um, when it when this crisis first emerged, it triggered a, a trauma response that my history is one of having been subjected to abuse. And um, I, I didn't know that that's what had been triggered. I just, um, we're in the process of moving house when the um, crisis hit the UK, which is where I'm based. And um, and I was suddenly obsessed with moving house. I became obsessed with making this happen and I couldn't sleep. I just needed to make the house move happen. And then I felt like I was a horrible person because I'm thinking people are going to die. People are dying and I'm bothered about moving house. And, I, you know, so it's this kind of downward spiral of hatred and awfulness and misery. And, and I suddenly kind of... Um, realized and I would say this was because of uh, talking to God and listening to God that this was about a trauma response that I'd suddenly got into this space that was like you've got to focus on something that's not the actual thing you know the global pandemic but is something that you can try to feel you have some control over that you feel you have some ability to manage and so focused on this house move and as soon as I realized I'd gone into a trauma response I then realized oh I, I can do something like that I've, I've been um, triggered into trauma response over and over again and I just hadn't clicked that that was going on and so I then spent about a week doing nothing very much and my, my mantra to anybody who's feeling ultra stressed about this stuff is like if you haven't got enough time in a day to spend at least two hours watching Netflix or watching nonsense on telly you're not doing this right you know that we need to make space for the trauma and for the difficulty and until we've made enough space that we're, we're you know we've got enough space that we can fill it with not just you know where we really don't have too much on we're going to struggle to process enough to get to a point where we can then become more productive and we can then and so from that I was then able to move to a place of um I, I stopped doing anything and God said to me like just stop doing anything until you work out what the thing is the thing that only you can contribute to this crisis and so I I stopped um and eventually I went for a run and that's where God often speaks to me and I was going for a run and, and it became emerged to me that I could um adapt loads of the stuff that I'd been delivering offline I could do that, adapt it to deliver online and not only adapt it for so I could deliver it online but to equip other people too and so now my life is crazy busy <laughs> because I'm just focused all the time on trying to get this information out and, and the work that I do I equip um, people who work with women who've been subjected to abuse I equip them to work more effectively with women and so as people are probably aware we have seen a massive increase in the um, the amount of perpetration of domestic violence and the escalation of that and so wait, wait a minute hang, that's a, hang on yeah. hang on I'm going to get to that later <laughs> You, you can't that, you yes, can't so, answer uh, all of my questions before sorry. I get to ask them. That's, <laughs> Spoilers, that's but yeah, so in short, I uh, was struggling, but I now feel like I found the thing that I I can contribute, and I'm in a good place, um, as good as you can be in a global pandemic, anyway. So I haven't received any feedback on this, but I've got to I've got to think that uh, people who've read your chapter want to know the answer to the question that jumps to my mind first and foremost. How's the house move going? <laughs> well, we're a bit further on. Um, so um, we are, uh, we, we've, 
we've definitely got the buyers have said they're happy to keep buying, which is amazing. The seller really wants to still sell. So we've just got a chain of one place, the place that are people that are buying us and they're going to be renting it. So it's a bit different. And then the people we're buying from. Um, so we're, we're currently waiting for a phone call any hour <laughs> from okay. the buyers to say whether they're happy with the date that we want to move. So if all goes well, we should be moved by the end of June. But um, who knows? And, you know, I... I'm quite pragmatic about it. If it doesn't happen, that's fine. If it does happen, that's great. Um, so, yeah, so we're, I just feel really um, chilled out about it, really, which is a bit of a miracle in itself. <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm curious. Uh, people move for different reasons. I've moved about a thousand times in my lifetime. Um, so for me, it's just the thing that has to happen every few years. What, what precipitated your move? Well, it was a few things really. So um, I moved. I moved to the south of England. I'm from the north of England. Moved to the south of England about um, uh, over a decade ago because God told me to move down here, and I ended up then married to the man I'm now married to. Um, and uh, yeah, and and kind of life has plodded on that that down here and we've kind of been you know living and um it just like in maybe november december time last year i i was feeling like we we just need to move and i i, I guess i would say that god has called us to do that has called us to move to the back to the north of england um we both me and my husband both work from home um we I wanna we wanna go back to the north of England and I should say that financially for people who are not in the UK, um, we will be mortgage free when we move to the north of England because um the price of housing in the south of England means that we can buy a house like twice the size and it still be half the price. Wow. So not that, that that wasn't our driving we didn't realise until we decided to move that we would be able to be mortgage free. So financially it makes a lot of sense. Um we'd be closer to my family and um it's just the place where we what we feel called to be we feel that that's the place we sort of feel driven to not driven but maybe drawn is the right word we feel drawn towards that and for us that would be our, 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 we would articulate that as god's directing us to do that so now you use uh you use this language and people new to you uh may take it the wrong way so even though this is not the subject that i want to talk about today i feel like i have to i, I have to highlight this for the listener <laughs> so that they can understand who it is we're talking to today. Um, people, people who go to church uh, a lot, especially depending on the type of church you go to, are used to hearing uh, preachers say, well, you know, God called me to do this, or, you know, mm. God, God, I had this sermon prepared and God said to me, no, I want you to talk about this instead. Uh, and people just kind of hand wave that away as as Christian speak and pastor language that doesn't really mean what it sounds like it means. But when you say God told you to do something, you actually mean it. Yeah. Like, yeah. I this, is, think, this, you is, know, this is not yeah. the norm. And so I want, I just wanted to hang a lantern on this for people to, uh, to, for people to understand when, you know, this is, this is more than, uh, Oh, well, I just had, a a strong feeling to do this thing that I really wanted to do. And so, um, you know, I, I believe that God is cooperating with me. No, this is when you say God told me to do blank, you mean God told you to do blank. Yeah. I don't mean it was a good idea. And then I decided God would like it. I mean that it was God's idea that I got on board with. And I think it's probably one of the first, one of the few times where 
um, in my life where when God's told me to do something, I felt like it would definitely, I could be confident it would make my life better. Everything that I've done that God has told me to do has made my life better, but I didn't know that at the time. So when God told me to marry my husband, I didn't really want to marry him and I wasn't overly keen on the idea, but I felt, well, you know, if God says to do it, it'll be fine. And he's like the most pers- amazing person I could have married, but I didn't, I didn't know that when I made the decision. And this is probably, you know, uh, you know, a decade later, me and my husband, we mar- actually, we've been married for a long time. <laughs> we've been married for nearly 13 years. And um, I think, um, yeah, that this is probably one of the first times in, in about 15 years that I can confidently say, like, God's God's calling us to do something which is going to give us a bigger house and more money. Like, literally, <laughs> normally it's like God's calling us to do something which means financial insecurity and something unpredictable that, that in the kind of human sense seems to make no sense. And in the end, it always, our life always is better for it, is enriched for it, is sure. is wholer for it. But yeah, definitely. Um, but but yeah. There, were, there were things that God has told you to do in the past, like definitely. marry your husband and you, you were like, hell no. <laughs> yeah like, that's not definitely. no <laughs> just no yeah I said no um and then over about 18 months the more that I was like I definitely don't want to marry him the more that um this th- this entity that I experienced as God and would say as God the, the Christian God was like the more that I knew that it was the only outcome that made sense for my life it was this confidence in this this is the right thing to do like I can't I don't I don't know I can't explain it in a way that would make sense to people who are like she just sounds crazy and I mean that, you know like it <laughs> It does sound crazy but like all I can say of the fruit of it like it's not about the fact that the fact that people say God told them to do stuff is actually what is the outcome of that what is the fruit of that and the fruit of my marriage to my husband is that he is the app we are the best team and the we have an amazing relationship I'm not saying it doesn't come with struggles it obviously obviously when you enter a relationship with somebody because God tells you it brings a whole different set of you know marital relationship challenges than the average person who goes on a few dates and then sort of grows in a relationship but like uh, overall the fruit of doing what god tells us has always been um absolutely transformative for us for our family for those involved in our lives um so you know that for us it's more about that's how you know that it's god not that it was that you know not not the kind of initial thing but what comes of that thing sure so uh before moving on to the uh more more important topics for today's discussion um, I just want to uh, follow up with what I feel my listeners are currently asking me to uh, ask you right now. <laughs> so um, uh, maybe not quite as strong as the sensations that you get when, when God speaks to you. But um, you've got this connection to your listeners that I've got I've, to God. You're like, I I've feel got... I sense the saying. <laughs> yes, I, 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 I sense them them saying something to me, and I'm telling them, "Shut up! Shut up! Shut up!" But I, I <laughs> so. Uh, the question is, why you? Why does God uh, talk to you in a way uh, that is that is very real and visceral to you? And why why do not uh, other Christians, or at least more Christians, uh, have that same experience? I don't know. I mean, I ended up in a conflict with somebody on social media recently because um, 
because I don't because that's the question isn't it if why why does God speak to me and not someone else why does God heal one person and not another like it, it, it it's not fair that like why why doesn't everybody who wants God to speak to them why isn't God doing that and I'm not somebody who even wanted God to speak to. I wasn't that person who's like I just desperately want God to speak to me like I just expected I'd never be that sort of person and so I don't know um why all I know is that that's my experience of God and I think you know my history and um you know, I, I mentioned it a bit before that I was um, subjected, my ex-husband abused me and I ended up living in a hospital with a premature baby and a toddler with a, a stripped of everything. And it was in that place that I met this God who has spoken to me ever since. And so I think there's something significant you know like when people say to me how how can I like hear from God the way you hear from him and I'm like or her depending on you know uh, I use all sorts of pronouns for God but um, <laughs> how could I hear from God the way you hear from God and um, I, you know like I couldn't advocate the pathway that I've been on because it means being losing everything and, and almost almost being killed by somebody and being totally destroyed and being hyper traumatized so I'm not, I don't think it's a pathway that I can advocate but the only thing I know is that for me this this ability to um, and I wouldn't say it's my it's not like a special gift that I have because I'm some special person I think it's just that when you when everything is stripped away from you there's something that can emerge in that that emerged for me in that place that was um, enabled me to start to uh, see and know God for myself and mostly it's about being dying to my own how I want things to be and what I want and, and be, being open to who, who God is. Um, so that's what it's been for me. But I, fundamentally, I don't know. But what I do, all I can be confident in is that I've experienced this God for myself. I can't, I can't say why that's not the case for everybody. Okay. Uh, I, appreciate, uh, I appreciate you indulging me in that. <laughs> Surviving Corona, believers and unbelievers, uh, I don't remember the name believers and non-believers uh um if, evaluate um their Do you need to view. read the blurb yeah, like, what the hell did i name this thing um it's been in my mind all this time uh so the book yeah wh- whatever it's called <laughs> um it's going to be much more dramatic when i when i said it in a nice broadcaster voice and everything like that and now, now age has caught up with me uh, in a very, very dramatic way. <laughs> um, so you said yes uh, when I uh, contacted you about being a I part did. of this book. Now I know this is hard to believe. It's going to be. It's going to come as a shock to uh, some of the listeners. Not everyone I asked said yes. <laughs> <laughs> there, were, there were there were those who said no. There were those who said, "Well, I I would, but I I'm too busy with other projects." There were those that I had to, uh, let's say, re ask and, uh, and and get on get on board. I'm not going to tell you who they are. Um, mm-hmm. That but but Natalie Collins said, "Hey, yeah, it sounds good." <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, I I didn't have to work Natalie at all. Um, <laughs> what? Why did you? say yes why did why did you contribute in an essay and by the way thank you so much for doing so it was it was fantastic uh, oh thank you yeah. well I really appreciate you asking me um to be part of it and I think um 
Like, it's interesting because the answer that you received from me was yes, but the answer that I gave in my head was like, oh, I don't think I've got time to do that. So I had this kind of, I got your email into my inbox and I I was like, oh, I haven't got time. I've got too much on and, um, you know, like all of that kind of thinking. And then I went for a run and I talked to God about it. And I was like, God, like, what what shall I do? Um, You know, and and I, I got like, I really felt God said to me, no, you need to participate in this project so, so that's why I did it because God told me like that's basically the answer like you, I probably generally would give you're kind this... of getting that aren't you oh that was the answer but I, I think you know so part of it was because because well it was because God kind of took me from the no I don't have time to yes you should do this and I think because I I appreciate what you do in trying to bring um diverse voices together and I I guess I recognize that my voice isn't the kind of traditional apologetics, the traditional kind of, uh, you know, responding to skeptics or atheist views about faith. And I and I felt like, no, it, actually, this is an important opportunity to represent both um, uh, my my experience of God, but also a feminist experience of being a Christian, which often lots of people who aren't Christians or even are Christians don't even know that there are Christians who are also feminists. So yeah, so uh, fundamentally, because God told me to, but also because I really like you, I like what you do, and because I feel like um, it, it was an opportunity to represent something lots of people might not know much about. Yes, well, it was it was fantastic. I really glad uh, I appreciate uh, you taking the time to do it. And believe it or not, I, although I should have expected your answer, I was not expecting you to say God told me to. to, <laughs> to <laughs> if I if I had thought you were going to say that, uh, heck, I would have put it in the book, uh, Natalie <laughs> Collins. You have to read this book because God told her to write. <laughs> you know, this is the marketing give, campaign, definitely. Oh, you, you bet. Get it on could, t-shirts. I'm trying to figure out how to, how to make something out of that. But um, yeah, um, that was fantastic. This, this crisis has challenged uh, a lot of people. It's challenged uh, faith. It's challenged faithlessness. Um, it, it has challenged our resolve. Uh, not everybody uh, has made it through uh, the same person that they were before. Um, but, you know, this crisis, it's not just a matter of theology or no theology or, um, you know, the, the various aspects of the crisis, first order, second order, um, uh, uh, things that are, that are, uh, a part of the crisis. This is just, it's real life and life has changed and, in some ways, it has changed in ways that, you know, we, we hope end and things go back to the way they were. But in other ways, it's changed in ways where, at least for me, I hope I hope it sticks. Um, so I wrote a little bit about this toward the end of my writing. And I was just wondering for you, uh, what are some of the things that you can't wait to get back to to normal? And what are maybe some other things that you hope... Uh, kind of stick around I don't think there's anything that I'm like that needs I don't think there is a going back to anything I think we are in a world an epoch defining um, time nothing's ever going to go back to how it was and like I think that's okay I think I would love to be able to um, I think probably 
I feel more for those people who are living alone at this time that I would love to be able to go and hug and spend time with the people who are living alone, particularly those who have to shield um, in the UK. I don't know, um, depending on where people are listening from that in the UK, for those who've got um, significant health problems, they're not allowed to see other people or hug other people. Um, those people who are who are maybe not shielding but are living alone, I think I feel mostly that I want I wish for them to be able to see people and hug people and to no longer have to spend every day being reminded that they are alone um, in a way that I guess the rest of their life they get to live and have people and have community and don't have to feel like that so I, I definitely I don't feel there's anything for me personally that I'm like oh I want to get back to x y or z um, there's things that would be nice but I there's nothing for me personally because because I'm really blessed with I live with a family and we work from I work from home already and you know we've been really blessed with kind of financial provision at this time and people supporting us and that kind of thing but I I think for those who've lost loved ones for those who are struggling with in all sorts of ways I definitely not for myself personally but for those who are struggling I wish for the world to be a place where they can um, flourish and where the things that they're struggling with at this time can be um, can be supported and moved on from yeah so but, but you're in a kind of a unique position uh, because economically speaking you're doing okay uh, because you're you're able to do you know to transition your work in in a way that may work out the pandemic in a strange may may be good for for Natalie Collins, but it's not good for a lot of people uh, economically. I know in in the U.S. and talking to other people from other parts of the world, they they're kind of surprised to hear this. In the U.S., a lot of people are out of work. We don't really have the safety nets in place that the rest <laughs> of the world has, and so people. Uh, you know, they were doing fine at a job that they had been working at for the last 10 years, 20 years. And uh, one day they went into work and were told to go home. And they they don't have another income. <laughs> there's no there's no source uh, where they can just keep going like they were going. And so what what's your message for those people? Well, I think the US needs to have a flipping load of unions. I mean, it shocked me when I discovered like, and it wasn't actually because of this crisis, it was other stuff like um, I saw this thing on social media about somebody who'd been in a company who'd been emailed and said that it, they hadn't bought a good enough car and if they weren't going to have, you know, if they're, they're clearly their amount that they're getting paid should allow them to buy a new car every year and if they're not they're doing that, then they might, you know, lose their job. And like in the UK, that's just like, you can't just sack people. <laughs> like You can't just get rid of them. Like there's protections in place. And I think, you know, from a, like historically it's because of um people like lord shaftesbury and and a lot of kind of christian reformers back in the kind of like 1800s and early 1900s and stuff who fought to ensure that workers had rights um you know and so i think that it's shocking it is shocking when you're from the uk or probably any other <laughs> european country that you know like in the us there's just no job security so i think there is hopefully that this crisis will wake people up to the fact that actually this system you know there is this kind of I think this idea that America is this land of the free and all of this kind of stuff but actually there are just not the protections in place for people so I think there's lots of kind of political work that needs to be done and kind of grassroots work and absolutely there there needs to be um a way of moving forward and I, I think people are often you know we I mean we're not financially in a 
uh, you know, we're in a, a, a stable place at the minute, but we have lived um, from month to month working freelance, not knowing where money's going to come in from for the last decade. So I think in lots of ways, we've, I personally have never lived with any kind of financial security. So this isn't new territory for me. And I really do feel for those who are alongside having the crisis of a global pandemic or having a financial crisis, you know, lots of people are living um, with debt and, you know, and have been living just within their means, um, assuming that life is going to plod along nicely. And when it doesn't, that's horrendous. So I I hope that as, as a result of this crisis, we see work work practices and employment practices changing and we see people demanding for those things to change. But I'm not sure that it's much comfort to those that at this present time are having a horrific time, definitely. Does that provide a challenge uh, or maybe, dare I say, opportunity for the church? Well, I just, I'm really reluctant to be like, oh, great. <laughs> now the Christians <laughs> can come in and save everything. Well, I think, but you I know... hear Christians argue this all the time. Christianity <laughs> oh, grew no. because they were the social services of, of Rome or whatever. Now, you, now, here you go. Here's an opportunity. Show us how that history worked exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think, I do think, I wouldn't want to say it's an opportunity because that sounds like really um, utilitarian and really problematic. I think, and, and also it's not realistic. There's lots of Christians who aren't interested in social justice and are, you know, kind of peddling prosperity gospels or demanding people give loads of money to their church. You know, like I'm not, like it's it's a much more um, mixed and complex picture. But I think, um, I think that the, the church in lots of ways has lost its way as well. So hopefully this is a chance for the church to refine its way and to see that its job is to um, love and care for those, particularly those who are vulnerable, particularly those who don't have um, the resources that they need um, and the protections they need. So if the church can be part of that, that's really good. But I don't want to be like, oh, great. This is a great opportunity for the church. It's a global pandemic. And I don't think we should be using the term opportunity lightly <laughs> at all, because it feels very deeply um, insensitive. <laughs> so I yeah. just want to... Uh to let you and the audience know that I'm a terrible lying liar. Uh, we've hit the 30 minute mark and we haven't really gotten started. So I, oh, uh, no. I, I told you that we would be uh, done in about 30 minutes. Um, I say this to guests. Okay. And those who are on with me for the first time, they, they can blame me when it goes longer, but you've been on with me uh, three times. <laughs> It's only well, you if you bought that line at this point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think, I, I don't know. I know you're the ones with the questions. I think um, I'm, gonna, I've got, I'm not I've taking got responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> I, got, I got questions. Um, and so we're, we're, let's, let's get into some of it. Although I, I do feel like I've left a thread hanging. Um, yes, uh, the pandemic is, is a thing that I think, I hope, changes us fundamentally forever. I hope it is a uh, an, a new epoch in the same way that an ice age is. Mm. Uh, I don't know if that is going to be the case because we also have a short memory and prosperity gives us shorter and shorter memories. So um, we, we'll, we'll have to see. But there are some things I miss. I miss being able to go to the mall and uh, go to the pretzel stand and order a hot, soft, unsalted pretzel smothered with butter and then sprinkled with Parmesan cheese. Uh, 
I've never even had what sounds like now I'm missing a thing that I haven't even had. They don't do, I mean, they do have like pretzels, but then don't sound as nice as that. So, so I don't like, I don't I like pretzels. I don't like real pretzels, but these things are amazing. They're like, um, they're like a cross between a bagel which I also don't really like, <laughs> and um, and uh, some type of pastry. They're they're like puff pretzels. <laughs> they're real, but they're big and they're soft, not nice. And they and if I don't like salty pretzels, but I like unsalted ones. So, and then you you know you dunk it enough, it, dunk it in enough butter in cheese. Mm. It's amazing. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I miss that. I miss being able to go to the mall and uh, have treats like that uh, whenever I feel like. Um, and now I, I wonder if there will ever be a pretzel stand again. Um, so things things like that um, gave me a lot of uh, enjoyment. I liked, uh, you know, as a writer, uh, I, I liked taking my notebook out or my iPad out and going to interesting places and sitting for a couple of hours and uh, just writing uh, in different atmospheres. Uh, I can't do that. I'm, I'm not doing that uh, anymore. Mm. And um, so I do, I miss things like that. But that said, I will, I will happily sacrifice all of that. If we can maintain a sense of who's important in society, um, mm. You know, in, in the U.S., the most important people in society are entertainers. Uh, and, and I say that, uh, I, I rank the most important people by how much we pay them and, and how much yeah. attention we pay them. Uh, inter entertainers, terribly important uh, for us in the U.S. Athletes, among the most important people uh, in, in the world uh, are, are athletes. Uh, doctors are... Okay, nurses, not so much. Uh, and people, the, the credence, the, the, those lowly people barely above homelessness who deliver your food uh, that, that you order in your home because you are wealthy enough to go online and order feasts and then have minions bring them to you. Those minions... Those minions are now heroes. <laughs> well, and he, and also those um, those people who are paid probably about the same as delivery drivers who look after elderly people in our communities. Yes, um, you know, and uh, you know, yeah. Like I was reading an article about um, in the US, there's care workers who are homeless who um, look after the elderly and then don't have a home to go to, living in their car or whatever. And I think, you know, um, it's not quite as bad as that in the UK, but um, there are there is definitely a hierarchy, you know, even in terms of the care. Like you say, doctors um, are kind of have quite a significant status. They aren't paid as well as, like you say, athletes or celebrities. But um, but you know, those who look after elderly people, uh, you know, it's seen as low skilled work, and it's just awful, really awful. So I, I like you. I hope there is a um, significant um, change in the priorities of who matters in our in our societies and not that no anybody doesn't matter but the status with which we celebrate people changes well let's be let's be perfectly honest i do not matter <laughs> in the society society ruled me um 
not, what's the word we're using? Not insignificant. Non-essential. Society ruled me non-essential a long time ago. Um, <laughs> but uh, that just kind of doubled down during this crisis. I... Um, I'm not essential. I'm a I'm a I'm an unpaid podcaster. <laughs> so how how non essential is that? Um, I'm uh, I'm kind of like in the category of entertainer, but not valuable. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, uh, the pandemic hasn't necessarily changed things for me. Although I can say that before the pandemic, I had a very good job, uh, and uh, I was in one of my uh, times in life where things were looking up and I had all the resources I needed and, uh, you know, things were good. I have periods like that in my life, but, um, the pandemic has, uh, knocked all of that back. So I'm back to normal now. Um, but I, I do see, uh, this, this change of status where we are beginning to, to reevaluate who and what is important. And that's something that I just hope never changes. And if that means that I cannot have another soft, unsalted, hot, bathed in butter and Parmesan uh, cheese pretzel in my life, I will, I will, uh, I will. That's a sacrifice you're willing to make, is it? Yeah, I will. I mean, I'll I'll, begrudgingly, but yes, (laughs) I am am willing to make that. Um, So that said, how has, um, the pandemic uh, affected domestic violence. Now, just to set this up, I I had heard uh, things like, well, uh, people, uh, abusers have more access uh, to their victims because p- people can't get out <laughs> yeah. uh, anymore. And even if you wanted to escape, there's no safe place to escape to these days. Uh, I don't know how true that is, but I, I did get the sense that there had been some shift in domestic violence in in the wrong direction. I was hoping to get you to talk, uh, uh, to speak to that issue. Yeah, so there's a couple of um, things to understand. So domestic violence uh, reporting has increased in the US. I think in every place where there's been a lockdown, we've seen increases in domestic violence. Um, where we've seen a decrease in other types of crime, so there's a decrease in car crime because nobody's going in cars. There's a decrease in burglaries because everyone's in their houses. So there's decreases in lots of types of crime, um, but there's been an increase in domestic violence. Um And some people presume that's because people being locked in their homes with um, their families, it's leading to greater stress or there's financial difficulties. And then previously non-abusive people are suddenly becoming abusive because of the stress of the um, virus. That is not why we are seeing an increase in domestic violence. It is that existing abusers who were abusive before the coronavirus hit are um, are able to have greater opportunity to abuse. So they are now not going to work. Their partner is now not going to work. The kids are no longer going to school. And they're, um, so it's about more opportunity. Um, and also there's this, this kind of, I, I describe it as an emboldenment of abusers, that abusers know how to modify their behavior when they're around people they want to be their allies. So um, when they're around um, friends or colleagues, they can behave totally reasonably and they come across as a totally reasonable 
reasonable human being um, and then they go home and they control their partner they control their kids they're violent they're abusive and this is why we know that abuse is a choice because they choose not to do it when they're in certain contexts and choose to do it when they know that they're not they're going to get away with it um, and so because the abuser is now not necessarily going to work is not necessarily going to church is not necessarily going to any of these places where they would normally be having to modify their behavior they're, they're emboldened that they're at home full-time with their partner and they can do whatever they want and they can say whatever they want and nobody is going to challenge them and they don't have to pretend to be nice for anybody and so there is this emboldening impact of that where the abuser's behavior may escalate um and so that's why we're seeing an increase in abuse. It's opportunity and this kind of emboldening thing that happens when the abuser is not having to modify their behavior for anybody. Um, and an abuser usually isolates their partner. So that might be alienating friends and family. It might be controlling what phone calls somebody can make. It might be controlling their finances and where they can go and if they can work or any of those sort of things. Um, and so social isolation obviously very naturally aids the abuser in his um and it usually is a man um, in his perpetration. So is there, um, is there a difference in uh, likelihood of abuse uh, based on the doctrinal differences between complementarian versus egalitarian? So, for instance, if a, if a woman is kind of brought up in an egalitarian mindset, I would think that she would be more empowered versus a complementarian uh, who might feel less empowered to, to do things about it. Is, is, there, is there any difference uh, that you've seen uh, in, in how that doctrine affects uh, abuse? Yeah, so I would say firstly it affects perpetration. So if you've grown up in a culture which says men have to be the heads, men should be in charge, men should be in control, um, women should be passive and submissive, obviously that enculturates you into a particular type of behaviour that is um, inherently abusive um, and creates expectations that women should serve you, that women should submit to you, um, which is very problematic and can lead to levels of entitlement that men can develop and own it and beliefs of ownership over partner that is definitely the root of abusive behavior however you know there are men who would you know there's there's a significant proportion of men who kind of infiltrate the feminist community and call themselves feminists who turn out to be abusers as well so i think you know you can look at bill hybels who's a well-known egalitarian christian and he um his behavior has been pretty atrocious in terms of sexually harassing women and being sexually abusive to women. So I don't think that being an egalitarian is an, a kind of a gives you a kind of uh, a vaccination or an immunity from the potential to be abusive. But definitely, I think a complementarian theology, which says that men um, should be in control or empower over women or that men have a particular leadership role that women don't that women don't have, that that can create particular challenges. But I think Christian Christian doctrine and theology generally has um, risk factors embedded within it. So particularly things like teaching about forgiveness, which is not either a complementarian or an egalitarian um, kind of thing necessarily, um, that when we're being told to forgive, that can often be um, manipulated by abusers and by those who collude with abusers to keep women with an abusive partner um, by saying, well, you have to forgive him or now he's repented. And I think Christians are not very good at... Um, at dealing with sadness, at dealing with pain, and they want to kind of... Uh, 
kind of erase that that bad choices and that kind of thing for people who are particularly interested in sin they kind of want to ally you know erase violence and abuse and make people forgive very quickly <laughs> mm-hmm. people are supposed to be good at recognizing and acknowledging sin so yeah i think the christian christian culture and christian communities have a long way to go but I, you know the reality is you look at harvey weinstein and hollywood you look at um the doctor in American gymnastics who abused um, hundreds of girls. Um, you know, this isn't a Christian or church only thing. Every single context has systems in place which can lead to abusers being colluded with and women and, and girls being unable to speak out or feeling they have to stay with the abuser. Well, this is a, this is a conversation that we need, need to have more of. There, there, there's a lot of follow-up um, <laughs> that I want to do that I'm going to... Um, discipline myself a little bit but i i will say that this is um this is one of those areas where you and i are in complete agreement <laughs> and um uh we we need to partner more uh, uh in getting positive messages uh out uh that said um positive messages uh that will that will have to go on the back burner let's mm. talk a little bit about the book um, yes. because there's there's stuff here and, and let me I should have asked you uh to prepare for this before the show but that's not my style. Do you have your uh chapter uh that you wrote in front of you in some type of document where you can read uh, a a couple of sections from it? Yes, I can do that. <laughs> okay, good, good. Because I won't I would I would like to hear a couple of dramatic readings of the last couple of things that I want to talk about. Um so I can show you the first one is the paragraph that starts with, um, but to those who think God should intervene. Right. I need to find that. Here we go. Right. So um, this one, let me just set this up. Um, you, uh, at one point, somewhat sharply, demand of the reader what do you expect god to do uh <laughs> not your exact words uh but i i actually read into this in your voice of course uh, <laughs> an even more um uh sharp critique which is uh why why are why do you think this is god's problem <laughs> look <laughs> you you humans, we humans are the ones who mess this up. And now and now you want God to do what exactly? Um this is this is what I heard you saying mm. in my head. Um so before uh I misrepresent you any further, let's just have you represent yourself with this one paragraph. So you want me to read that paragraph? I do. With, with okay. as much, which is much of a sharp tone and scolding voice as I hear in my head. Can okay, I will read it. I'll do. I'll do my best. Um, okay. <laughs> but to those who think God should intervene, I wonder what they think God should do. 
Should God have struck my ex-husband dead or wiped my memory, but what then of my children? Just as I can't wipe away the pain my ex-husband caused my children, so God can't just magic away the consequences of human choice. Rampant capitalism and neoliberalism have moved our society to profit-driven selfishness. COVID-19 is affecting us so brutally, not because the virus is unmanageable, but because we prioritize the market over human life. In the US, we've heard calls for human sacrifices to ensure the survival of the economy. That's not God's fault. That's humanity's fault. And each of us holds some responsibility. I, I feel, is it okay to say this? I feel verbally spanked. <laughs> I just, yeah. <laughs> okay. Was that, was that what you were going for? Uh, I don't know. It's, it's that, it just, it's that kind of, uh, yeah, I sort of, it's that first, I feel frustrated. It's not kind of trying to berate people or discipline people, but it's that kind of, you know, we have caused this mess with our demands for the world to be a certain way. We want everything to be easy. We don't, we want, we want our, our minions to deliver our food to us. And, you know, that's what we want the world. And we, we want to say everybody else should make it different. Everybody else should change it. And, you know, this is, we are living with the consequences of the world we have created. Okay. So I'm going to meet you partway. Mm. Um, we have made things worse than it, than it had to be. I, I, I do believe that. I do believe that humans share some responsibility for how bad this is. And, and possibly how bad it's going to be because we're, it's not over. Um, so, and, and part of that is fueled by things like greed. Uh, I think rampant capitalism has a lot to answer for. Uh, so we're not that far apart on that aspect of it. But when I say partial responsibility, we may have made things worse, but we didn't make it. We didn't make the disease. We didn't, this is, this is not a thing that humans can do. And so I am just, I am just wondering if you can at least understand, I don't expect you to make an announcement and say, yes, God is to blame for this. You should, but I know that you will not. Uh, what I, what I do want to hear you say is that you understand why people like me would see if, if there was a, a such thing as a God, that God has some some responsibility in this too. Uh, because otherwise we shouldn't have a coronavirus. Uh, when God, when God made the heavens and the earth and declared it good, were there viruses, uh, in the, in the universe? And if there were not, why are there now? Uh, there, there, there are some things at a kind of a, uh, a God level that only can be explained by God power if you if you say that there is a God and you just can't blame us for it. Yeah, I like I totally get. Like I'm not unsympathetic to people blaming God. Um I I don't think we can answer just as yet whether the coronavirus was created by nature or not. My understanding is that if it did um, develop in a wet market in China, the potential is that it was because you were bringing together animals that wouldn't naturally have ever been brought together. And so certain diseases uh, got moved from one place to another that would have never got moved to those places. If it, so, it, do you know what I mean? So, that shouldn't matter. The animals shouldn't be able to have the disease either. Uh, but that's, I think that's about... 
two humans. This is a thing, once again, that you need to explain at a God level if you're going to have a God in the mix. So I suppose I would say it's the same as should we... Should every parent blame themselves every time their kid goes through anything bad because they brought that child into the world? So every time a child goes through something difficult, goes through bullying, every time a child, uh, you know, kind of suffers some sort of health problem, should we have, should we as parents blame ourselves and say, well, that's my fault because I brought this human being into a terrible world? And I think that if you're going to say that you're going to blame God for the coronavirus, then you would have to say, I blame every parent for creating another human being and bringing them into this world well, I because don't blame parents for that though because parents didn't create the world uh they didn't create polio so if their kid gets polio it's probably not the parent's fault uh no one i, know, I mean I don't, I don't think it is you know. either but what i'm saying is that you you know that if we're saying that by creating something you hold responsibility for every every situation that then emerges for that thing you've created then that would be the same for parents that on that same the argument would be the same that if a parent a parent brings a child into this world knowing what this world is like why is that parent any less responsible for that form of creating they did than god is responsible for creating human beings in a world that is now totally messed up yeah well i i do blame parents if they created polio <laughs> well, not creating, I mean, but yeah, but, if, but they know. Why would you, you know, like I guess, I guess I don't know whether I don't know whether I would see that God created all of these viruses necessarily. That a lot of this is about the mutations of things because because viruses are like live things that move, and some of the things, the ways that those things work, actually work in. I mean, I I don't know. <laughs> The same thing that creates the mutation that allows things to viruses to grow and become diseases which hurt people is the same things which allow things to mutate and allow things to, you know, cre- medications to be created and to solve problems that it's right. the, the fact that things grow and change and develop and become harmful can also be the same process which allows things to grow and change and become transformative and healing. So I think right, right. I just... Well, we wouldn't it's, need, it's the, the, we wouldn't need yeah. the medicine without the disease. And so ultimately, uh, the mutations happen. I guess I'll cap the question off this way. Um, in, in different Christians, understand, different Christians answer this differently. So there are different answers to this. Of course so there are. You're, you're not going to give a wrong answer or a right answer, but it will help uh, both the Christians and the skeptics in the audience understand where you're coming from. Now, um, so the question is, when God created the universe— uh, and when he said that it was good and before humans sinned, was there uh, decay, death and decay and disease in the world at that time? Uh, was that a natural part of, the, of God's creation? I don't know, as I wasn't there. <laughs> I think okay. I I think for me I don't know I don't know whether the creation story is a um poem that explains human experience rather than I don't know what I think about it and that's not it doesn't I don't need to know that in order to be a Christian that for me my experience of God is that God is entirely good has and in every way transforms my life in a way that make enables me to to live in a way that I can flourish more and and my my experience of God is that God loves me and that God transforms um, and is entirely good. And so uh, that's that's my experience of God. And so when things like the the virus come along, my 
and the way that I understand who God is is not somebody who would create a deadly virus that kills humanity and destroys lots of us. And actually, in certain areas in the world, it, it isn't killing people because they have made taken measures, which means this virus doesn't have to be a killer virus that destroys things, but it means you have to prioritize other things than they are prioritizing. So I think... Sure. Um, yeah, but I would say that my experience of God is that God is not a God who created the world with right. deadly viruses. So just so you know, there are, there are plenty of Christians who say, no, 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 the world was created uh, that way. The only place where you wouldn't have seen those things was in the Garden of Eden. And mm. so the, the punishment wasn't that God uh, made the earth bad with thorns and death and viruses. It's that he threw humans out of the one place that was protected from that. But that that was a part of creation. So that's that's just one of the the doctrines to that. And then there are other Christians who say, well, wait a minute. Um, if God actually created death and decay and so forth, and that was baked in, then what did he, what exactly did he mean when he looked at it and said it was very good? And then, you know, a skeptic response would be, uh, you know, maybe with their it, in heaven. Will there be the possibility of viruses and mutations and things like that? If the answer, if if the answer is no, that possibility does not exist in heaven. Then the question then becomes: Well, how did it become an option on Earth? God had to do it because humans will be in heaven too, but we're not. We're not going to have viruses and pandemics. Uh, and so you have to come up with some bigger explanatory uh, framework for why we have these things in the first place. I don't think, uh, I mean, I hear you saying that you have to, but I, I don't think you do have, I mean, I don't have to. I, but, I don't but skeptics do, but to. many Yeah, you may do. have to, but like, I don't feel, I don't feel in any way that my life is less full because I haven't explained how that can be the case. But, you know, for those who it's important to, like, I, I don't want to diminish that, but I don't think you have to explain that in order to, fully participate in life during a, a virus, I suppose. Okay, so let's just go to our last dramatic reading. Yes. I have two for you, and this one oh, is really? the one that starts in the season of crisis. So this okay. is just after the, the quote from um, what's her Yes, I've got it, I've got it. Yeah, um, so let me let me set this up. I'm sorry to do this to you, Natalie, but you brought this on yourself. <laughs> you are the only person in the book who did and who would have dropped an F-bomb, <laughs> a freaking F-bomb in surviving <laughs> Corona. People, if you have not paid your $2.99 yet and you cannot come up with a reason to do so, here is your reason to do so. <laughs> Uh, you've you've got to love a person with so much passion. She just doesn't give an f uh, about certain or types does. of niceties. Or does, you know, <laughs> or, or does. Or, this is uh, look. I I actually thought it was a very powerful powerful sentiment. I disagree with every word of it, uh, but, <laughs> but but I loved this paragraph anyway. And I wish we had a whole show just to talk about. Um, the uh, this section uh in your in your writing seriously people uh if if you don't have any reason to to put 299 in the cause you should just 
do it and read uh, Natalie's chapter. Uh, would you read this paragraph? That's uh, great. It's long. You want the whole of that it, paragraph? Yeah. I sure do. Yeah. Okay. In fact, then. I wish I wish I had uh, the the two or three paragraphs before it. But as you say, yeah. it's it's quite long, and there's. We'll do another show, Natalie. We'll, we'll get back together <laughs> well, we again, will. right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, okay, then. So, um, in this season of crisis, this description of prayer has been crucial. Over the last few years, there has been wide-scale dismissal of thoughts and prayers, um, posts and comments which emerge during terrible world events. Fuck your thoughts and prayers, say the activists. What are you doing to bring about change? Which isn't hugely different, different to what the author of the biblical book of James says. If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But thoughts and prayers isn't what prayer is really about, as Janet Morley says. My experience is that in prayer, God lovingly reveals to me my inadequacies and the Holy Spirit helps me to be transformed so that I can be kinder, less selfish and more self-aware. God shines a light on areas of my life where I'm living unethically and calls me to deeper honesty and integrity. Some Christians call this sanctification, but prayer also reminds me that it's not all dependent on me. I cannot fit the COVID-19 crisis. In a global pandemic, we are reminded of our powerlessness. And so prayer is a way of remembering what I cannot do and of holding in God like holding on God's light, both um, human <laughs> of holding in God's light, both humanity as a whole and the individuals we know personally. We can name their needs and weaknesses. We can identify the places where transformation has taken place. In prayer, we can be part of something bigger than ourselves. As Janet Morley says, it is a strong activity. Thank you so much for that. I uh, I would love to do a whole show just on <laughs> Janice, Janet uh, Morley's quote and uh, your mm. interpretation of that. Uh, we cannot do that. In fact, we're we're going to end uh, with yeah. the best part in the audience uh, wanting more, which is how <laughs> you should end the podcast, really. Uh, so, but I do want to give you an opportunity uh, to answer the question that uh, skeptics, at least, are uh, shouting <laughs> in their heads mm -hmm. and out loud, uh, which is uh, thoughts and prayers. Um, a, a strong activity, you say. So what exactly is the benefit to prayer? Skeptics have been debating Christians about uh, the efficacy of prayer for, for centuries. <laughs> so um, what exactly uh, is the efficacy of prayer in in your mind? And, and there are several things that you mention in your uh, chapter here, so I don't ask this as if you don't have any answers. You have too many mm -hmm. answers uh, to this, but I wanted to give you a, a chance to highlight um, some of that. And just to, just to kind of uh, bait you a little bit, I often uh, say uh, uh, thoughts and prayers. No, I offer you thoughts and more thoughts. <laughs> and and I put that up against your thoughts and prayers any day <laughs> to prove to me that my thoughts and more thoughts are are less effective uh, than your thoughts and prayers. Natalie Collins, you have been wound up. Go. <laughs> I 
I guess I would say it's a bit like if somebody's married saying, what is the efficacy of regularly conversing with your spouse or somebody that you care about? What is the efficacy of having conversations with your friends or your family or your colleagues? What is the efficacy of conversation with people that you care about? Um, And that's for me, the starting point of prayer, that prayer is the purpose for me of prayer is communing with, conversing with the um, God of all creation who has made me and loves me and um and 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 communing with the uh the the G- with jesus who i believe came to earth and lived and, and lived a transformative life died and, and rose again so for me that primarily prayer is a conversation with with god and and so just like you probably can't quantify what is the value of conversing with your spouse or with your family or friends like what would you what, how would you quantify that i don't know so i think firstly that is prayers are about um a relationship and establishing it and growing a relationship with with god um and through that relationship being transformed and being made further whole and being able to flourish and make the world a better place by being a better person um but i also believe that um prayer is a spiritual act that that there is such a thing as as evil and as demonic power and i believe that prayers and and prayers prayed in the name of jesus um affect change spiritually affect change enable transformation to come i am at people you know when my when my son was um in hospital and was about to need a lung bypass because he was going to die and people were praying and he uh survived that i think that that those prayers were part of the reason that he survived um and you know yes we could then have a conversation about why some people don't survive and i i don't have the answer but i i think that that prayers, prayer is a, a powerful act that en, um, enables God to work in the world. Um, and and that has been an experience I've had in terms of what prayer has done for the people I've prayed for, what prayer has done for me. Um, so it is something that I've experienced as powerful and not necessarily in that it, that whatever I ask for it's not it's not God is not a fairy godmother making ma- magically granting wishes prayer is not wishes that we ask God and he grants but prayer is about um, a, a much more deeper sense of building of relationship so that would be my answer I know that it will be entirely unsatisfactory for any skeptic but um that's my experience of prayer and I, I I don't you know I think the thing is that people pray because they have found it sometimes people pray because they're desperate but for those who consistently pray throughout their life they pray because they have found it to be effective people don't just keep doing things unless they find it to have some efficacy for their lives and so I would say the evidence that prayer works is the millions of people who continue to pray um, across the world day in day out. So Natalie, I appreciate your answer. Um, A few weeks ago, I did um, a podcast, Three Christians uh, Have a Discussion About Hell. It was a hell podcast. And so we did an all-Christian cast on that. And then we followed it up with an all-atheist cast (laughs) to talk about uh, hell from the atheist perspective. I would uh, very much before season two is over, like to do a similar thing with prayer. It's a, mm. it's a big deal to both Christians and atheists. And if I can put together uh, a panel of Christians to discuss prayer, would you uh, agree right now before the witness of all of our listeners to be on that uh, show? If I can make it, I'll be there. That sounds like a yes <laughs> to me. I promise to be. That's a if strong I can. yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's as strong a yes as a podcaster ever gets. So uh, you heard it here first, uh, folks. Um, 
I uh, I would very much uh, like to put it together because I think that you have a perspective on prayer that, uh, while similar to a lot of Christians, is not the same uh, as what a lot of Christians would say. And this this has to do with what we talked about in the beginning. It is because your experience of God is experiential. It is relational. Uh, it is uh, an activity. Uh, it is not a doctrine. No, uh, I've tried to corner you on doctrine before, and uh, that doesn't that didn't go well. Uh, you know, you're not, I don't want to say you don't care about doctrine, but your your perspective on doctrine is more like, well, you know what? This is who God is based on the actual experience of being with God. And if that doesn't match with your doctrine, screw your doctrine. <laughs> so mm-hmm. would, would you, is, is that, a, is that accurate? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I don't, I, I think there's useful checks and balances against cults, you know, as a result of doctrine, because, you know, anybody can say they've re- experienced God, but, you know, God and God can tell people to do all sorts of things which aren't actually God and are their imagination. So I wouldn't say that it is useless, but my own personal experience is that, you know, God's experience of God always trumps what somebody said that God should be like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So prayer is one of those things where yeah. uh, you can have two very different conversations with Christians. You can have the conversation about doctrine and you can have a conversation about um, actual prayer <laughs> the yeah. experience um of of prayer and they're they're two very different conversations and so um that is that is something that i i think would be a real treat to the listeners it would be a mm. real treat to me um and so uh yeah look look forward to another email in the next uh in the next couple of months um <laughs> so uh natalie collins she is the uh second uh uh, article second essay in uh, in the book surviving corona believers and non-believer you know i still don't have it uh yeah <laughs> believers and non-believers examine their worldview uh in this time of crisis you know that's something that i say like <laughs> several times a day um and uh so what i'm on a microphone Ooh, there it goes um uh look Honestly, I um, Natalie's was the first article that I read uh, when they were coming in. Uh, just a little bit of inside baseball. When I uh, asked people to uh, put these together, uh, they started uh, doing them and sending them in. Uh, I did not read any of the submissions until I was done writing mine because I didn't want uh, to be influenced by anything that anyone else had written. And I also didn't want the accusation of... Well, but you just wrote a bunch of, you know, counter-programming based on what other people said. That is, <laughs> that is not the case. Uh, but when I was done and I started reading them, uh, I reached for Natalie's first. And uh, even though hers is not first in the book, you might want to reach for Natalie's first, too. Uh, <laughs> it, it really sets a tone. The first one uh, in the book is actually Randall Rouser. We'll be talking to him uh, soon. Randall is a, uh, another interesting and unique, uh, character who is a real gift to the, uh, Christian community, but a lot of people know Randall and not a lot of people know Natalie. Uh, and if you do not know Natalie, there are many ways, uh, to get to know <laughs> Natalie in her work. And I'm proud to say, uh, that surviving Corona 
is one of the great ways uh, to be introduced to Natalie Collins. Natalie, uh, is there anything else you would like to plug uh, before we say goodbye today? I don't think so. Um, if people want to read more about my work, they can go to nataliecollins.info um, and they can follow me on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at God Loves Women with underscores between the God Loves and the and women, the women bit. Um, and I'm on Twitter as Natweetly as well. Um, so yeah, so feel free to come and connect with me if you'd like um, or contact me in some other way. And um, do buy the book. Um, it's great to have been part of it. And thank you for having me on and part of the book. I really appreciate it. And uh, for those who do not know yet, I think this is the first time I'm announcing it. It's uh, actually now available on Amazon. You can just uh, go to Amazon, uh, pretty much any uh, civilized country, and look up Surviving Corona. You don't even have to put in the rest of it. Just put in Surviving Corona. It will be the first book that shows up that looks like it's worth anything. I I promise. Uh, The rest of it's garbage. Don't even even look at that stuff. Um, Surviving Corona. There's only one Surviving Corona worth reading, and it's the one with Natalie Collins in it. She drops an F-bomb. Read it. Uh, until next week, folks. Have a have a great time. And thank you so much for your support. We'll be um, uh, giving you an update the next time we talk, I think, on uh, where we are as far as donations and so forth. Things are going really well. Uh, keep purchasing the book and keep hitting that donate button. Uh, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again next time. <laughs>